Well, good morning. If you'd open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, while you're turning there, let me remind you, this is the third in a series from Isaiah 40, a series of nine different uh, sermons, and the, the theme is, is Behold Your God, Behold Your God. The prophet Isaiah spoke these words by the Holy Spirit that are recorded for us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray briefly with me again? Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm a, I'm a bit of a sports fan, so I enjoy use, using sports uh, illustrations now and then, and I'm grateful to be here where more of you appreciate my sports illustrations than at my previous church, so thank you for that. And if you don't appreciate them, just bear with me. Not every illustration will be from sports. I'll mix in some Lord of the Rings as well now and then. Uh, Tony Dungy, Super Bowl winning coach, current television football analyst, is one of the most respected figures in sports media. His character and his kindness are regularly extolled. Everyone knows what a kind and humble man he is. And what a lot of people know, because he's very willing to share, is that he is a devout follower of Jesus and is non-compromising in his commitment to Christ. He is very willing to tell people of the mercy of the gospel that is found in Jesus and the priority that Jesus Christ plays in his life. And that makes some people a bit uncomfortable. Dungy is also willing to share the wisdom and commandments that are found in Scripture, and that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Matter of fact, it makes a lot of people mad. Whether it be abortion, Dungy is an outspoken advocate for the unborn who links his support to the biblical teaching that all people are born in the image of God, created in his image. Or whether it be sexual ethics, Dungy believes that marriage is defined by God as between one man and one woman, and all children should be in a home with two married parents, a, a mother and a father to raise them. So w- whenever the former coach speaks or puts something on social media, there is a firestorm of protest with numerous calls for him to be canceled, which is, of course, the social equivalent of excommunication from the Church of Public Approval, whose rules, it seems, change almost daily. And what's interesting is the basis for that condemnation. People will say, how dare he use his platform to speak such narrow-minded nonsense? How dare he quote from such an old and outdated book? The Bible, after all, it's so yesterday. 
And we have, as a society, have moved on from the narrow, maybe even bigoted teachings of an ancient, but let's face it, small Middle Eastern religion. And those who have not moved on, well, they had best repent of their foolishness and offer the proper sacrifices to the contemporary God of nowism. But is God's word really outdated? Is it? Is the sum total of wisdom to be found in the prophets of this present moment a wisdom that only reaches back maybe a couple days ago? Is, is that where true wisdom's found? This morning, we're, we're going to look at three verses in the Bible, first spoken by the prophet Isaiah over 2,700 years ago. And contrary to what today's social media icons, who are the prophets of our day, would have us believe, the message of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, can be summarized this way. People are fleeting and fragile, but God's word is forever. So if you're here or listening this morning, and and maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, I want you to consider the source of wisdom by which you live your life. Is there truth out there? Is there a truth that endures in that source of your wisdom? And more importantly, I want to ask you this, is there hope? Is there any hope in it? For the rest of you, followers of Jesus Christ, I want you to listen to Isaiah's words, and and, and I want you to consider your own commitment to the Word of God. Are you embarrassed, or are you delighted by the ancient words that are found in the Bible? Ancient words that God says are living and active, even, especially today. We'll do a little background first, just to catch us up here. Remember that in Isaiah chapter 39, we had a narrative, and uh, the prophet Isaiah came with a message that exile was coming to God's people in the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin. The capital city was Jerusalem. Tells the narrative of the prophet Isaiah announcing to the good king Hezekiah that the jig is up for Jerusalem and all of Judah. They are going to be destroyed. They're going to be sent into exile in Babylon. And that message, we would have to say, was a bit of a bummer, just to full stop. Isaiah chapter 40, though, the chapter that we're considering, follows right on its heels. And in verses 1 and 2, we saw that there was a call for comfort. Immediately after the the promise that exile is coming, uh, a call has gone out for someone, someone to speak tenderly for God to Jerusalem and cry to Jerusalem words of comfort. Because exile, according to the Lord, it will not be the last word for God's people. Forgiveness of sins is coming. And then verses three and following that we considered last week, there's a a voice response to that call. A voice responds and cries out and and the message is wondrous and it's, it's filled with hope. The glory of the Lord will be revealed to God's people. Why? Because a Messiah is coming. A Messiah will come. And so that's where we find ourselves now in verse 6. And and, and it begins much the same way as, as the previous section did. A voice says, cry. 
And I said, what shall I cry? Our text begins with a command for someone to cry to Jerusalem. We've already heard one voice, now we need another. And Isaiah, as usual, he volunteers. Remember, that's kind of just in Isaiah's DNA. Here I am, Lord, send me. And so he volunteers, and maybe it's like this. You know, I don't know what to say. What do I say to the people? So he's told, cry this. Cry this, Isaiah, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Again, this might seem like a bit of a bummer, but let's, let's consider it. it. See, what this is saying, that people, the best of people and the worst of people are fleeting and they're fragile. The best of people and the worst of people are fleeting and fragile. Twice in verses six and seven, the people are identified as grass, which is a metaphor. We're not literally grass, it's metaphorical. We're like the flowers of the field, beautiful, truly beautiful for a moment in time. And we would expect that, right? Because the Lord is our creator, we are made in his image. So, So yeah, there is beauty in people. That is not to be denied here. But that beauty, it's just for a moment, and then it fades. People are temporary, or at least our beauty is. Here today, gone tomorrow. Field of flowers can be brilliant with colors, but it, but it only lasts for a season. And, and if a hot wind blows over it one day, that field can be desiccated, dried out. The colors fade, the, the grass dies. And I, I remember one time I was at my, my very first semester at Oregon State, and I was sitting in, in a class, and I was staring out the window because that's what I did a lot in, in college, staring out the window, and, and I remember seeing the, uh, this tree that began to... Uh, the, 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 the leaves began to turn. And, and I just remember each day showing up and, and they got a little bit more orange and a little bit more red and it was beautiful. And then one day I'm sitting there and, and I glance out from my usual, you know, not listen to the professor, but stare out the window for a moment. And I looked at the tree and there was nothing on it at all. All the leaves had, had fallen off. And it was jarring. And, and it, it made me feel like this sense of loss that, that it was so beautiful like the day before and then it was gone. It was gone. Time moved on and it seemed unalterable. And, and the Lord here is reminding the Judeans that that's what people are like, fleeting. James says the same thing when he asks, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And if a hot wind can make a flower fade, imagine when that wind is actually the hot breath of Almighty God. There's probably here an implicit reference to the Spirit of God. The Bible refers often as as wind or, or breath. Remember Jesus when he was talking to Nicodemus and says that if you want to enter the kingdom, it has to be by the Spirit of God. And Nicodemus is really stunned by this. He doesn't understand the born-again language that Jesus is using. And, and Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes. 
and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, that, that Spirit-wind connection there. And the, the point for Jesus is that the Spirit of God is sovereign. He does whatever He wishes. The Spirit of God is not tame. The Spirit of God is not domesticated. We don't control the Spirit of God. And when he judges, his word is final. And we might think, man, this is heavy. I thought this was supposed to comfort the people of Jerusalem. And all that they're being told is that you people are like grass, here today, gone tomorrow. But the people of God, remember, they had been given an advance word. This was long before they would actually go into exile. Chapter 40 is a message calling for tender comfort for Judah. And we get an indication of why 10 chapters later, when Isaiah says much the same thing in chapter 51, verse 12, he says, this is the Lord speaking, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? The reason this was supposed to be comforting to them is because their oppressors were terrifying, but they were human, merely human. And they would come and they would go. Jerusalem was to remember, even in her, her distress, that, that their, their persecutors were, were just men. The Babylonians at that time, they would be the mightiest dynasty that the world had ever seen up to that moment in time. But to the Lord, they were as intimidating as a field of daisies or pansies. And the Lord was every bit as sovereign during the worst of the Babylonian exile as he was during the glory days of David and Solomon. Nothing had changed with the Lord. He was just as strong, just as good, just as in control. And Judah was to take that lesson to heart. Your oppressors are men, merely men, here today, gone tomorrow. And that lesson was meant to sustain them and comfort them in the days ahead when they would need it most. And and I would say that that lesson should probably comfort and sustain us as well. What does this mean for for us? Men are grass, right? Grass withers, flower fades. Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that people don't matter. That that's not the point of this, right? You're just irrelevant. You're like grass. No one cares. That's not the point. Because remember, God is telling this to comfort the people. So apparently they matter enough that God wants to comfort them, right? So, so, so that's not the point. People do matter. The statement that people are like grass, like the fading flower, it's in contrast to the stability, the endurability, the eternality of God. I mean, if, if, if people didn't actually matter, then God wouldn't care enough to say words to them. And it's that contrast between the oppressors of Judah and their sovereign God that is precisely the point. Compared to God, those who threaten the people of God, they're like grass, like flowers that come and go. 
So don't fear humans. Don't fear humans. Jesus said much the same thing, remember? He said, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In, in the Bible, to, to fear someone is to revere that thing, to worship it, to offer obedience to it, to, to put your ultimate hope in that thing. So the, the lesson here, don't put your ultimate hope in humans. And again, if you're listening and, and maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, please consider in whom or what are you putting your ultimate hope? Are you looking to people or things or your job or your employer or the government, which is like grass that withers and flowers that fade? They're here today but gone a moment later. People can be wonderful and fun, comforters, encouragers, but people make terrible gods and are even worse saviors. Are you placing your ultimate hope, your only hope, in this life? And if we pay attention, we know that life is jarringly fleeting. Time marches on relentlessly. And unless Jesus returns, time is coming for all of us. I don't know how often you you pay attention to the news and, and, and there's a there's an icon that you like to someone who is significant that you, you learn has passed away. I mean, just in the last few months, we heard that Olivia Newton-John died, right? And Bill Shonley, the mayor of Rip City, died. And, and I remember when I heard of, of Bill Shonley's passing, it, it made me sad because it made me realize that an era that was so significant to me was gone, and it was gone forever, I, I remember sitting on my dad's bed, listening to him uh, narrate blazer games for me. And it, it was something that, that I'll, I, I mean, every time I hear his voice, I, I get transported back to that time. And then, and now he's gone, right? And he's not, he's not coming back. Time is going on and it's jarring. And time can be cruel. We can take hope, though, by the words that Jerusalem heard 2,700 years ago. Being a Christian in this world, it's not easy. Right now, we we don't have the political and social strength, maybe, that we once had in this country, and that's okay, because we were never meant to have that kind of political or social strength. Remember, Christianity started out with, like, Jesus and 12, let's face it, fairly unimpressive individuals that were recruited from the boat docks, not exactly the place that you would go to start a, we're going to take the world by storm sort of thing. We have to remember that no matter how things go politically or socially, such things are just the context in which we are called today to be faithful. They are not the objects or the, of our desires. They're not the objects of our hopes. Political and social power are fleeting. And, and if my devotion to Jesus goes up or down based on how I'm treated on social media, then I'm probably fearing and revering what the Lord says is like withering grass and fading flowers. And that's just foolish. Young people, 
Lord willing, you are looking at a long life ahead of you. And, and that's exciting. I'm, I'm super excited for you. I just had my 56th birthday. I'm, I'm probably halfway done at this point, right? Um, but it, I, I'm, I'm excited for you. And what's going to make it worthwhile is not what you can make of yourself during that time, but what the Lord will make of you. Be excited that you have a lifetime ahead of you to test and follow and serve the Lord. Y'all heard of Polycarp? He was, he was like one of the first really church fathers who was martyred for his faith. And, 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 and as he's asked at the end, I, I, I mean, p- people were begging with him to recant because no one wanted to kill this old man who, who so many people liked. Like, not even Rome in all of her, her, her fury wanted to do that. So they're begging with him, please just recant. Would you please recant? Cross your fingers. Do something. We don't want to send you off to die. And, and Polycarp's words still echo through the portals of time. He says, 86 years I have served Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior now? Wouldn't it be great to be able to say at the end of your life, I have served Jesus 86 years, and he has never failed me. That would be taking to heart the lessons of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. Now, in contrast, of course, in contrast to the grass that withers and the flowers that fade, we see in verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, we have to ask, what exactly is the word of God? And we think, well, that's easy. That's the Bible, right? Well, yeah, it is. The, The word of God includes the Bible, but it's more than that. It's more than that. For example, we probably know not every spoken by God is contained in the Bible. Not every word spoken by Jesus. Remember that Jesus at times preached so long that the disciples were concerned that the people listening were going to go faint from hunger and not be able to make it home. And you can read the Sermon on the Mount, which is the longest of Jesus' sermons that's recorded in the Bible, and it takes you maybe 15 minutes if you read it dramatically and slowly. Okay, so fair to say he was preaching far longer than what we have written down in, in the text. Is that fair? Okay, all right. So, so right there, if, if we concede that, if we admit that, then we have to know that not every word spoken by Jesus, not every word spoken by God is recorded in the Bible. So the Bi- everything in the Bible is the word of God, but not all the words of God are recorded in the Bible. Okay, so, so there's that. Uh, the, the scriptures indicate though, that there's even more to this idea. It's, it's the, uh, of the word of God. It, it is the sum total of all of God's communication, including, I would argue, general revelation, like God's fingerprints that are left all over the mountains and the, the valleys and the hills and the snow-covered. It, it was really nice to see Mount Hood all just glowing in splendor with the white, right? Especially yesterday when the sun came out for a little while at times. Uh, stunningly beautiful. God's the architect of that, and, and we should think, Lord, thank you for this good word, even though it's a wordless word of your creativity and your power and your beauty. Sum total of all God's communication, including God himself as the great communicator. And so God is his word. I, I'm, I'm not saying that this is God. I'm saying, though, that and I'll explain it later, that, that, that God is his word, though. 
God is his word. When, when we see the word of God this way, then, then what's said about it lasting forever, standing forever, it shouldn't be surprising. Let me explain why. God's changelessness is displayed in his word. One of the great doctrines of God is that he is, and here's a theological term for you, immutable. What does that mean? It means he doesn't change. He is unchanging in the perfection of his nature, his character, his purposes, his will, his promises. God is unchanging in his ethical commitments that are an extension of his own moral nature. That is, he he doesn't like go from bad to worse or from bad to good. He doesn't go from good to better. He's as good as he could possibly be and always will be. He is changeless in that way. He doesn't get worse, and he has no need of getting better. He is who he is yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The psalmist extols God for this. He says, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Here, the psalmist is thinking of the one thing on earth or in the universe that at least seems to be unchanging. That is the universe itself. And he says, but compared to God, that's like an old pair of socks or, or a flimsy bathrobe that just wears out with use. And that should have been a great comfort to the Judeans who, who knew that their God would not grow old. His character would never devolve from good to evil, from consistent to chaotic. Every attribute that God possesses, that he possessed at creation, that he had when he made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, were the same attributes. The same, he's the same exact God as when he announced to them they are about to go into exile. He was just as good, just as powerful, just as sovereign. And that should have been a great comfort to Judah and a great irritant to their oppressors. You see, in the economy of the ancient Near East, if one nation conquered another nation, it was evidence that that nation's god or gods were superior to the gods of the nation that was destroyed. And so Babylon would later be marching Judah off into exile, and they'd be saying, well, this proves that our god is greater than yours. And, and, And Judah would just say, no, our god is actually sovereign over you. He used you like the tools that you are. And, and they would go, no, we're superior. And they say, no, in fact, you're not. You're not. And then they would go off that way. And it was probably just like this irritant to them because that's not how the economy of the day worked, but that was in fact true. God was sovereign. And Judah needed to know that God's sovereignty was not diminished by their trials. His word would stand forever. His sovereignty was actually manifest in their trials. And I think we need to remember that too. One of our greatest temptations is to interpret or define God by our circumstances. If things are going good, then that's proof that God is good, right? But when things turn bad, well, maybe we're tempted to question God's goodness. And man, we, we can't fall into the trap of, of interpreting God through the lens of our circumstances. We need to interpret our circumstances by who God is. 
and he never changes. He's not less good when things are going bad, and he's not better when things are going good. It's common right now to hear of deconversion stories, and almost all of them are prompted by the problem of evil, where, where a person today will say, man, the world is so broken and is so evil, I'm just not sure that God is everything that he says that he is, or everything that the Bible says that he is. There must be something wrong with God. or Maybe he doesn't exist. People are tempted to reason. But why are we pointing our finger at the creator and savior when we see suffering in the world? Now, I can't explain to you exactly why there's evil or brokenness in this world. I know the Genesis account, the Bible accounts for evil in this world, but, but I can't give an account for every bit of suffering that occurs in this world, but, but I do know God's response to suffering. He didn't run from it. He ran right into it. We have to remember that God's response to evil in our broken world is the cross. A suffering God entering in, living dying and rising for that broken world, the world that we inhabit. God's faithfulness is also displayed in his word. Numbers 23, 19, uh, we, we read this, God's not a man that he should lie, son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken? Will he not fulfill it? These are rhetorical questions. Of course not. Whatever God says, he will do. The people, who've got, the people of God who acted in faith, they always understood this. Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Now remember the story here. Abraham is promised a son, and he's got no kids. He's got no kids. He's promised a lot of offspring, and he's got no kids but one. And then he's told to offer this one to the Lord. How is God going to keep his promises? Well, verse 18 of Hebrews 11 says, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Abraham knows, if I'm going to have this enormous family, it's got to be through Isaac, right? He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham goes to offer up Isaac. Remember the words of Abraham to his servant when they go up the hill to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. I and the, la- and the lad will return to you. Abraham knew that God had made a promise. Abraham knew God always keeps his promise. So Abraham knew whatever happens up there, Isaac is walking off this mountain with me because he knew God keeps his word, always. Simply put, he always keeps his promises. It is impossible that God should lie. It's impossible that he would ever break a promise. God's power is displayed in his word. He creates. He does things when he talks, right? We all do. God creates. He promises. He comforts. He heals. The difference between our speech and God's is that God always accomplishes his will through his speech. Sometimes I'm able to get my kids to obey. God always does exactly what he wants. Isaiah 55, we heard it earlier. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and spout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 
Why will the word of God last forever? Because the omnipotent God is able to accomplish everything that he desires through his powerful and revealing word. And we need to remember that today more than ever. Kids, you're being told by your parents and by your Sunday school teachers or youth leaders, memorize the word of God, memorize the word of God. Yeah, do it, do it. It is powerful and effective. It will pay back. You, you, will, you will be blessed by what you memorize today for the rest of your life. I promise you. I still remember a bunch of the verses that I memorized, and I did it for candy. I did it for candy, but, I, but, but the Lord was good. I still remember so many of those verses. I remember them in a blend of like four or five different translations. There's some King James and some NIV mixed in there, but still, it's, it's important to do. Also, think on this. Regardless of cultural sensibilities, God's word will last forever. Young people, youth, teenagers, young adults, we have to remember that nothing in God's word is outdated, wrong, or irrelevant, even if our culture thinks otherwise. The sexual ethic prescribed in the Bible is right and true and good. It always has been and it always will be, regardless of what the 1960s sexual revolution said. God's teaching on marriage is right and true and good. It always has been and it always will be, regardless of how our politicians and courts might want to redefine marriage. And God's teaching on what it is to be male and female is right and true and good. It always has been and it always will be, regardless of our culture's attempts to deny it. American culture right now will tell you that the Bible's teaching on what it is to be male and female is ignorant and unkind. Biology is irrelevant. It's how one feels that determines your gender identity. The sexual binary of Genesis 1 and 2 is old-fashioned, and it is hopelessly out of date because we know better now. But God's word will last forever. Yeah, God's word, it is so yesterday, but it is so today, and it is so tomorrow as well. Always has been, always will be. The arrogance of those who argue that God's word is outdated, that today's sensibilities have more cumulative wisdom than our creator does, is breathtaking. And young people, I know this can put you in a tough spot. But you have to remember that the social influencers of this age, of today, this moment, and that might include a lot of your teachers, they're saying things that 10 years ago would have been deemed ridiculous. Their wisdom might seem brilliant in the false glare of the social media spotlight, but it's like the grass that withers and the flowers that fade. God's word will last forever, even if it doesn't receive that many likes right now in our culture. And I can offer no better advice than to look to Jesus. Someone I would submit to you is the bravest, wisest, and most compassionate person alive today. God's person is manifest 
in his word. First, Jesus, Jesus fulfilled the word of God. How important was the word of God to Jesus? He shows up, Sermon on the Mount, begins to preach. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The, the, basically saying the Old Testament there. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus did not come to write his own script. He came to follow the script of the ancient words, come what may. Second, Jesus spoke the word of God. In Matthew chapter 7, it's the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and Jesus did some crazy things in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he, he says at one point, or a number of points, he says, you have heard it said. And, 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 and if, if, if they had been going to synagogue, if the people listening there had been going to synagogue, they would go, oh, I've heard all this before, right? Because the, the common teaching of the day was to, was to compare uh, what different rabbis said. Oh, you have heard it said this, but Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi such-and-such says that, and, and, and that was how the teaching went. And so Jesus says, well, you have heard it said, and, and they're expecting probably him to start quoting some rabbi, but he doesn't quote some rabbi, does he? Who does he quote? Well, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Well, who said do not commit adultery? Minimally, Rabbi Moses, who's fairly significant, but God, it's God's word, right? He starts quoting God. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I, I don't do Greek unless it's funny, and, and, and this is funny, so you got to listen. Um, the, the language there, the, the, the Greek, it's, it's ego de lego, not, not lego my ego, but ego de lego. Ego, where we get our, our word I, so it's the pronoun I, de is like a, a, a conjunction, but. And then lego, the, the pronoun is involved with the with the verb, I say. So it literally, woodenly says, I, but I say. A really good English translation would be, but I, I in boldface, but I say to you. That's the only way to read it. You have to say it like that. Like, but I say to you. And what was the result? What was the result when people walked away from the Sermon on the Mount? They were blown away. Why? Because Jesus didn't teach the way the other teachers, the ones they had heard over and over and over again. He spoke as someone who had authority. Do you know why? Because he was speaking the very word of God to them. Power and authority. And, and, and then Jesus even says in, in Mark 13, 31 and other places in the Gospels, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. His own words, he likens to the very word of God, which would endure forever because they were the word of God. And you know what's interesting? When, when Jesus was saying, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, he had just gotten done giving them a promise that he would come again. The most sure thing, the most rock-solid bet ever that should be our hope in front of us, Jesus is coming back. And he's got this. He has got this. Jesus is also the focal point of the word of God. Jesus actually believed the entire Old Testament was all about him. 
Luke 24, verse 44, he, he says to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's just a shorthand version of saying the Old Testament. Everything in there had to be fulfilled. It's all about me. Just a word from our sponsor now. We have an upcoming class that will show just how the Bible is all about Jesus, biblical theology, the story of Scripture. It's going to meet at 9 o'clock in the morning on Sundays before the main service. It'll begin sometime towards the very end of April. More on that. Okay, back to our regular scheduled program here. Fourth, most importantly, Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. So he reveals the Word of God. He speaks the Word of God. He's the focal point of the Word of God. And he is the word of God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Hebrews chapter 8, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant. He mediates as better since it is enacted on better promises. What Jesus came as the word of God, what he said, it's better. We're part of a better covenant with better promises. And so it's no surprising then that Paul would just say in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God, they find their yes in him. That's why through him we utter our amen to the glory of God. Jesus is the word of God. And for those of us who know Jesus, we know we have been born again by that very word. By that very word. I said earlier, the word of God does things. And for every Christian here, we know that it's done something in us and to us, and for us. Listen to how Peter treats this text of Isaiah that we have been studying. Peter writes, 1 Peter 1, having purified your souls from your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We should conclude, but if you're you're here, you're not a Christian, that, that good news is the gospel, the announcement that if you repent of your sins and trust that Christ has died for you and was raised from the dead so that you might live, you can be saved. That is the word of the gospel that Peter says is the greatest word ever preached. For the Christian who's here, my brothers and sisters in Christ, remember the wisdom of this world is hopelessly untrustworthy. Sometimes it's helpful, helpful, sometimes. Other times it's dangerously wrong. The only sure guide is the word of God. It is spoken by a creator God who has never changed, never evolved, will never need to. It's manifest in the person of Jesus Christ who spoke the word of God, fulfilled the word of God, and is the word of God, and even today saves through the word of God. Jesus, of course, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the proof is in its durability. But for each one of us who are here today, who can give testimony, we can find an anchor for our soul in this. It was this powerful word that saved you. You know that. So cling to it. And do not be ashamed of it. 
for the word of God will last forever. GBC, behold your God, the one whose word endures forever. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We would be nothing without your word. We would not exist without your word. We would not know of our sin without your word. We would not know of salvation without your word. We could not be saved without your word. And we could not endure without your word. Father, bless us to the end that we would not put our hope in people, our hope in things, but our hope would only be in you. Bless us, please, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.